Welcome to Bluegrass Stories with Howard Parker and me, I'm Katie Daly. We're always happy to introduce you to people whose jobs are served beautifully by their musical interests, talent, and education. Our guest today is one such person. Jen Larson is the manager for the Grand Old Opry Archives. For the past two decades, she's been a bluegrass vocalist and educator, which she continues to do, and in her day job, she helps preserve musical history through research and work with country music and bluegrass stars. Sounds like a dream job to me. Like many of our guests, her interest in music started early, listening to the music of her parents. I, uh, yeah, I grew up in a small bedroom community about an hour north of Boston, um, and uh, grew up with parents from the Midwest, so uh, both sides of my family are from Wisconsin, um, and I grew up with a lot of music in the house, not necessarily bluegrass. Uh, my dad really enjoyed country music, though, and we certainly watched our share of the Beverly Hillbillies and Hee Haw and uh, the Glenn Campbell show, Johnny Cash show, um, and my parents are also huge uh, big band and swing fans and big fans of Louis Armstrong, um, and so I kind of grew up in a really great musical cradle filled with jazz and pop standards and a little smattering of country thrown in. It wasn't really until I moved to New York to go to college in the late 80s that I ended up encountering a larger folk music scene, Um, and just with the friends that I ended up falling in with, uh, I happened to have the good fortune of finding a group of people that uh, loved bluegrass and honky-tonk music, and the more time I spent with them, the more I sort of, you know, my ear got tuned to these these genres, and I remember one summer, um, I think it was probably after college, sort of in the early mid-90s, a group brought me up to uh, the Gray Fox Festival, and I remember standing on that beautiful hillside, and the first band I heard was Country Current, (laughs) and I just remember thinking, wow, this is magical. I love this, and so then it turned into a progression of me just, you know, seeking out recordings, seeking out people that knew about the music, uh, and eventually uh, purchasing a guitar. So they, so they, the, so the, so the, the Boston Bluegrass Union really was never a factor in your, in your influence, at least your early influence in bluegrass music. Not at all. It wasn't actually until well I started, well into the 2000s that I started to really Well, I ended up uh, in a band in 2000 um, called Straight Drive that was led by a great New Jersey banjo player named Terry McGill. Um, And it really wasn't until I sort of really opened up the hood and started to, you know, learn the craft of bluegrass that I started to realize that there had been, or, you know, now there still is, this continuing beautiful bluegrass uh, scene in the uh, in Boston in the Boston area, but yeah, as a kid growing up, I was more interested in actually hardcore punk music that was happening. <laughs> sure, that's 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 sort of bluegrass like. So so here you are, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So here you are, a a, a, a New Yorker, um, I guess. I mean, you've spent a lot of years in New York, and and. Many folks outside of New York really don't associate all with with bluegrass music, but in fact, there was uh, 
there was quite a robust uh, bluegrass music scene and roots music scene in in New York. Uh, wasn't there? I guess centered around uh, Brooklyn, or uh, or or were there other pockets of activity around the boroughs? Yeah, I mean, I would say when I entered into that continuum of of bluegrass music in in New York City, um, <clears throat> it was mostly taking place in the Lower East Side. Uh, there was a fellow named Greg Gehring, who uh, maybe some of your listeners know who he is. He was, uh, he's from Erie, Pennsylvania originally, and he moved to Nashville as a young man to play briefly with Jimmy Martin, uh, play fiddle with Jimmy Martin as a Sunny Mountain boy. And he made his way to New York City in the early 90s Probably a little, maybe a little earlier than that, but I, I encountered him in the early 90s. And he was the hub of a really lively club scene at a place called 9C at the time. It subsequently turned into a place called Banjo Gyms. But that this little storefront club turned into a pretty hot place for bluegrass and honky-tonk music. And, and a lot of bands formed from that. The Demolition String Band with Elena Skye and Boo Reiners came out of that. Uh, Danny Weiss um, and his wife, Mary Olive Smith, met there, and they are playing music to this day together. Um, John Harold used to drop in. Jim Lauderdale used to drop in. Um, <clears throat> and that's sort of where I ended up getting my introduction into bluegrass music in New York City. And then from there, it kind of spun out into jam, there's a very lively weekly jam session uh, that, you know, would sort of a pop up all over the place. <laughs> Virtually any night of the week, you could find somewhere, some group of people jamming. Um, and yeah, and then sort of as I think into the early 2000s, Brooklyn became a bit of a hub. James Reams and the Barnstormers, uh, James used, to, well, I think he, I mean, up until you know, obviously this year um, has run a really beautiful bluegrass festival in Brooklyn. Um, and there's also a really lively old-time music scene in Brooklyn as well. And and was there yet another uh, pretty well-known jam, or maybe we're talking about the same jam, run by a gentleman whose nickname was The Sheriff? Ah, uh, yeah, Sheriff Uncle Bob. Uncle Bob, yeah. Sheriff Uncle Bob, yes. He ran... Um, he ran a really great jam session on Wednesday nights at a place that is now defunct. It was called Bag It In. It was a pretty lively crowd. <clears throat> One notable thing I want to mention about the Bag It, because that was also um, another hub, uh, you know, where a lot of paths would cross. And I remember at one point, that's where I met uh, my friend Michael Daves, who is also a force to be reckoned with in, in New York bluegrass uh, these days. And, I remember the night that he met Chris Dealey for the first time there, and they just sat nose to nose for a couple hours at least playing and getting to know each other. Um, and I think also the Punch Brothers, sort of a lot of people kind of circulated through New York City, um, I would say probably mid-2000s. It was a really lively time, and that jam scene uh, that, that Sheriff was running was a good, also a good hub for all that too. But in spite of the fact that it sounds like you were having w way too much fun in New York, you did not go to New York to play bluegrass music. You went to New York to, you went to New York to to get an e education. So, in in, in leading up to um, 
your your job in the arts and um, and as an arch- archivist curator, what what what's your educational background? Sure, uh, there's really nothing in my educational background that would indicate any drift towards bluegrass music. Um, so it's something that came from another part of my heritage and brain <laughs> that I wasn't previously aware of. But I moved to New York from Massachusetts in 1987 to go to a very small art school called Cooper Union, which is in the East Village. And I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts uh, from there. And uh, after that, I ended up uh, getting a master's in the history of design and material culture from Bard Graduate Center. Um, And I just wanted to mention that I actually wrote my master's thesis uh, on the history of nudie suits <laughs> and how the evolution of the rhinestone cowboy came to be. And, and that was back in 2000. I spent about three years studying Moody Cohen um, and his career and, and country music and country music heritage uh, and sort of put together kind of an interesting thesis around all that. Um, Any idea how I can pick up a nudie jacket for like 50 bucks or less? <laughs> I think you should go to go to CVS, get yourself a bedazzler, and have a big old Saturday night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are those are pretty high end niche market items, <laughs> but uh, fascinating to study that. And I did that really because um, not because I really thought I was going to have any great <laughs> career purpose, but I just it was sort of uh, my attempt to intersect my love of design history with my love of country music. Um, and so I wrote that thesis and then thought, well, that, that, okay, I'm just going to put that on the shelf for now. Um, and then I ended up several years later uh, getting a library science degree uh, from Pratt Institute, which was probably the most practical thing I ever did. But uh, in between the master's thesis from Bard and my library science degree, um, that's when I was also learning my craft and playing in a band, uh, sort of as a weekend warrior in bluegrass. Um, and I did that with Straight Drive for about 10 years. And we played, I was just going over some of the gigs that we played, and they're pretty, <laughs> we played everything from like BFW halls to some pretty high-end educational series. Uh, probably our most amazing gig was playing at Carnegie Hall on the main Oh. Uh, and we were we shared a bill with Sierra Hull and Ryan Holiday, and a regional group called the Ebony Hillbillies, which is a really great uh, black string band out of New York City. Um, that sounds like a highlight, and that sounds like a career highlight right there. Just to stand on that stage, yeah, and to sing into that hall. Although, you know, it was part of an educational series, so I kind of liken it to playing at a kid's birthday party because, the, you know, the audience was filled essentially with kids and our families <clears throat> who were coming to support us. And I just remember once, uh, you know, when, when Terry started to play the banjo, you know, we did some fast instrumental and all the kids started to bum rush to the front of the stage. And I just thought, well, there's, there's bluegrass showbiz for you, right? You know, at Carnegie <laughs> Hall, you get a bunch of kids running towards the stage. <laughs> it was great though. Uh, and what an honor. And to know, you know, to, to go back and understand a little bit more about the history of how bluegrass first appeared on that stage, you know, 
is is pretty amazing. Um, and 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 yet, e- even after all all of that, your your the the next stage of your career was n- really not in 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 the music industry, was it? You, I believe, you went to work for the Met. Yeah, I uh, I had been pretty much continuously working a day job throughout all of this. Uh, there was one brief moment where um, my path crossed with uh, David Bromberg and his wife, Nancy Josephson, and I, I briefly uh, went on a tour with them um, to be a backup singer in, in David's band and to, to work with a project that Nancy had. Um, and that, that was one moment in sort of the mid-2000s where I thought, hmm, geez, I wonder if there is something else out there musically for me that could lead into a career. Um, and then I decided, no, <laughs> I, I like having a day job. <laughs> I'd like having a, a steady paycheck, um, and I wasn't quite ready to sort of cut cut loose in that sense. So I had been sort of working continuously um, in various museums in New York City. And, that, and ultimately, after I got my um, my MSILS degree from Pratt, I ended up, uh, before the ink was dry on that, I ended up at, with a job, an amazing job at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, working, interestingly enough, in their... Um, in their Arts of Africa, Oceania, and the Americas collection. So it was an entirely ethnographic historical collection, and I was in charge of all their visual materials, their photographs and and study materials and part of their library of images. Um, and I was there for five years quite happily uh, until I started to get a little discontented <laughs> and started to look around to see what maybe some of my options were. And that's when I saw that the Grand Old Opry Archives actually had an opening um, for an archivist position. And I just thought, my gosh, I, I had a flashback to my, the thesis that I wrote about my nudie suit, you know, <laughs> uh, in, in the early 2000s. I thought, who else is going to have that on their resume? I think I've got a really good shot at this. And, and apparently you did. Yeah, I was shortlisted pretty quick. <laughs> so um, that's when I made my decision to to move to Nashville to take this job. So uh, now here you are um, at the um, at the Opry, uh, which you've been for about four years, almost five years now. I I, I gather, and. And and many in bluegrass would say, well, you know, it's the Opry, it's country music. Uh, you know, what what's the connection with bluegrass? But in fact, there's there's always been a very deep connection between the Opry and uh, and bluegrass music. Back when bluegrass was part of country, is is many other facets of country music. So uh, I notice. Uh, I, I, I went to see when when Mr. Monroe was uh, inducted into the hall, and he's number thirty-seven in nineteen thirty-nine. So, so there, there's, there's, there's quite a correlation between the Opry and 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 bluegrass. And how much of that do you uh, do you come across in your in your daily uh, activity? Well. Um you know, it's something, it's really, bluegrass is really a lens that I love to look through when I look at the archive collection that the Opry has, because, you know, most of it is uh, country music based for sure, um, in the sense that the core collections that I uh, take care of are from Roy Acuff, 
Minnie Pearl, and Marty Robbins. Those are the three central collections, and things have built out around that. Um, and our the bluegrass holdings are not numerous. Let me put it that way. Um, you know, there's a few Bill Monroe beautiful Stetsons. Um, we did acquire Bill Monroe's the rest the remainder of his uh, estate from James Monroe. I know uh, some people might have been wondering about what happened to that a few years ago, but the Opry did acquire that. Um, and I would say that the biggest strength that we have, though, is Les Leverett's amazing, incredible photograph collection. Um, I'm not sure if you know who Les Leverett is, but... I do, but uh, go ahead and, uh, yeah, discuss the, 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 the breadth of that collection a bit, if you will. Sure, yeah. Les Leverett is really a remarkable figure and very near and dear to the Opry's heart. Um, he started in 1960 working for National Life and Accident Insurance Company uh, as their first photographer, professional photographer. He basically established their photography department. And, of course, at the time, that was the umbrella company for WSM and also the Grand Old Opry. And so, in addition, you know, his job was to photograph all aspects of that <clears throat> business history and, and corporate goings-on, but uh, he ended up primarily focusing on uh, photographing the Opry, really in like some, you know, arguably a golden age, you know, we're talking about um, getting, you know, one of his earliest pictures is Patsy Cline on stage. Um, and from there, it just goes on to, you know, he, he captured some incredible and iconic photos of people like Loretta Lynn and uh, Tammy Wynette and George Jones, uh, lots of, and then to sort of orient this back to bluegrass, there's some incredible pictures of Bill Monroe on stage, um, Bill Monroe offstage, sort of candid pictures. Uh, there's also a whole trove of uh, photographs of Flatten's Scruggs. Uh, Jim and Jesse, um, geez, I could probably, the list probably goes on, but like, I mean, we're talking about hundreds of photos of all of these folks um, and some really incredible, the, the shots that he got both on stage and off are really special. Um, so I love to see that kind of representation uh, in the Opry archives. Um, and also to mention, we have Jim McGuire's photograph collection and Jim is a famous for his Nashville portraits, um, and he, I've had a, I've had a chance to meet him and, and talk with him, and it turns out he's a huge bluegrass fan, which is great. He's a New Jersey boy originally, <laughs> who moved down to Nashville in the seventies um, to to be a photographer, and I I think one of the most amazing pictures that we have in his collection is that. And I'm sure you've seen it, um, and some of the uh, listeners have seen it, is the Bill Monroe hugging his mandolin. Oh, yes. Which to me is just, I call that a unicorn shot. It's just, what are the chances? <laughs> and Jim told me a story not too long ago that, that that photo came out of a session that he did with Bill. Um, and it was at the tail end of the session, and Jim was packing up his equipment. And apparently Bill had said, to Jim, you know, could could we just do one more photo? And Jim turned around, and that's what that's the pose that Bill had. Hmm. And I can tell you that uh, that as a as a Dobro player, um, I'm I'm aware. Uh, I've I talked to the late um, 
Mike Aldridge quite considerably, and I know that Jim McGuire was the photographer on uh, Mike's first uh, solo album, which is just called Mike Aldridge Dobro. And in fact, uh, uh, the Dobro pictured on the uh, on the album cover, in fact, is not Mike Aldridge's Dobro. It was Jim McGuire's Dobro. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. Talk to Jim about his Dobro playing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful to hear. Um, yeah, so that's, you know, uh, the, the bluegrass heritage at the Opry is something that I'm always, I'm always looking for ways to kind of like bring that to light and celebrate it and do some storytelling around it. Um, uh, and so, you know, that's, yeah, especially as we approach our centennial, the Opry is coming up on a 100th anniversary in a few years. And I think bluegrass is so integral to that story. Um, so I, I look forward to, to being able to, to pull together some kind of exhibit I, or something. <laughs> I'd also note that, uh, the, the latest, um, well, she's not quite inducted yet, uh, due, due to the pandemic, but, uh, Ron, Rhonda Vincent is patiently waiting, uh, in, in the wings, uh, right now. I can't wait to see that happen. I know. And it's just, it's unfortunate timing um, because I was really looking forward to actually being trying to get backstage to see that one because that's a really special moment and I know that how much it means to <clears throat> to Rhonda to to be inducted um, and so yeah that's a celebration that we all look forward to for sure. Now in in uh, in your job as um, as archivist uh, or or within the Opry collection, what what is the Opry? looking for uh these days is there something specific that they have and you have your eyes on and and if um if there's someone out there lucky enough to um to have an uh, some type of an artifact um how do they contact the opry uh for a possible inclusion into the collection that is a good question um you know we've been doing a lot of uh thinking in the past few years about what we want our collection scope to be, um, you know, because the fact is, is that we're not the Country Music Hall of Fame and we're not the Bluegrass Hall of Fame and Museum, um, that our collection is really embedded within a larger business uh, culture. Um, and so, you know, I'm trying to focus on things that we can sort of that we can have to tell the history of the Opry and the storytelling around the artists affiliated, <clears throat> whether they've, they've been members or guests. Um, but, you know, that, that also includes, you know, I, I'm interested in things like ephemera, like ticket stubs, and, I, you know, I kind of have this grand vision of putting all of the Opry programs that I can get my hands on, <laughs> you know, the physical-like programs for the night, um, uh, into uh, a master list, uh, you know, and sort of queue those up uh, chronologically. Um, so we have sort of a full accounting of every show. I think that would be amazing. Um, so, you know, and I, I think we're also looking for selected pieces of stageware. That would still be great. We have a really beautiful collection of nudie suits, um, many of which came out of Marty Stewart's phenomenal collection. So, um We've appreciated the fact that Marty has been so instrumental in preserving and collecting country music history. I regret that I am not Marty's size. 
<laughs> well, we all have our own size, Howard. What are you going to do? <laughs> So, so uh, again, how, how does if, if someone has um, something that they think might might be of interest, what what course of action might they take uh, in contacting um, uh, either? Uh, I, I suspect just your your department. Yeah, um, I would I would point people towards whatever our main uh, number would be, uh, whether it's calling the box office um, or main. You know, if there's an Opry number, um, I don't typically, I, I'm not typically available just as a front line that way. Um, I, people usually will send a message, an email, or a phone call to the Opry, and then it comes to me. Um, so that way I have a chance to kind of, uh, you know, vet the question and, and respond when I have a chance. Um, but, you know, occasionally I do have people that find me, <laughs> and I'm certainly on social media, so if somebody ever wanted to contact me on Facebook, they're, they're welcome to do that. Um, you know, and then uh, that will launch a conversation about what they have and, and to see if it fits in our collecting scope. You know, I, I do appreciate um, the times where I have had a chance to talk to a collector or somebody who has a memory, you know, my... My dad went to the Opry in the 50s, and we have this great signed program or, you know, songbook uh, from Ernest Tubb or somebody. I, I always love hearing stories like that because it's, there's such an intergenerational connection with the music. Um, and I, I really value and respect the fact that we have diehard fans, you know, in those generations. And so it's nice to hear people reflect, you know, that they have a family memory associated with the Opry. And uh, do you um, have an opportunity to actually go into the field, uh, either in search of uh, of something unknown, or to take a look at a particular artifact that you think the uh, the Opry might have an interest in? Yeah, I've, I've definitely had some occasions to do that, um, and that's always been interesting to see. Uh, you know, when a collection is in place, I, I would say you know the last time I had the opportunity to do that was when I met Les Leverett. Um, it was actually one of the, in 20, it was in 2017, early 2017. So I hadn't been on the job all that long. Um, and one of our staff members said, I think Les Leverett is interested in talking to the Opry about, you know, the possibility of, of selling his collection. And I, lo and behold, all of a sudden I find myself in Les's, uh you know, in his office, his home office, with his file cabinets that are just brimming full of the most beautiful photographs. And there he is with a huge smile on his face and stories, stories upon stories to tell about his career. Um, Les and I have, have hit it off as friends. And um, he's he's just a delightful guy. Um, and every every time I've ever had a question about any of his pictures, He's got something interesting to say <laughs> and some great anecdote. So um, meeting him has definitely been one of the highlights of working at the Opry. But that was a great example of, of me going into the field to, to check out a collection. This podcast is, um, is really angled toward either the, the serious fan, the bluegrass fan, or, or the, um, the bluegrass professional. And uh, here you are, um, uh, a, a fan, a, um, a, a, a player, professional player, 
you've um, you've toured, you've been around the world, and 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 I note that just a shout out to one of my local uh, local buds, uh, Bob Perilla and Big Hillbilly uh, Bluegrass. You've 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 been on tour with him overseas for a state for the State Department, and and you've taken those parts of of your history and made it into into a career and we always like to ask those individuals that have done that that for those uh men and women following in your footsteps what um what advice if any uh, might you give them what what prerequisites uh, might you recommend for someone either becoming an archivist or or getting involved with something like the IBMM or the the CMA Museum or the Opry? Well, you know, I think in my case, it's, it has certainly been an asset all along for me to have a musical background and have my musical resume um, and experiences that I have because I think I approach I approach my work as an archivist in some measure, you know, with the sympathy and empathy of what it actually means to perform and and perfect a musical craft and performing craft. Um, so when I work with a performing arts collection, which is essentially what this is and you know, what the Hall of the Country Music Hall of Fame has, what IBMM has, um, and to some extent, CMA, they also have a, a collection. Um, you know, I think, I think the fact that I, I come with both academic training and just subject, subject expertise, and even if I didn't have a, a job related to country music history or bluegrass history, I'd, I'd still be a huge fan. And, you know, my library is chock full of books about the history of those genres and southern string band music. Um, so I would say that it's helpful, not necessary to be a musician, certainly not. Um, but for me, I've, I've found that I bring something a little bit unique to the table as a result. Um, but I would say also, you know, as I had mentioned earlier, one of the smartest, most practical things I ever did was to go back to get my library science degree because that opened a lot of professional doors for me, and it's a very practical degree in terms of learning how to organize information and understand, you know, you can walk into a university library and understand how to work with a researcher or how to do research. Um, and so I, I feel like my practical experience combined with my educational experience has made me, I don't know, it's, it's really enriched my, my career. For sure. Are you are you the only um, performing archivist at the Opry right now? Uh, yes, that is true. Yes, I might. I yeah, I know uh, Chris Jocelyn is you know over at IBMM. I feel like he's kind of somewhat my um, soulmate, my museum soulmate, <laughs> in the sense that you know he is he's the director of that museum, and yet he's but he's also a picker. So um, <laughs> there's a few of us out there. I'd like to meet us. You know, maybe we could make a super group somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> the the archivists. Yes, the, the super archivists. <laughs> how uh, how large is is your department at the Opry? Oh, we're tiny. We are just a tiny. There's I think there's maybe seven of us right now, um, and I'm the only archivist. I have an uh, an assistant. Um, and the rest of the department is actually more devoted to um, music licensing and clip licensing, 
uh, and sort of handling the business of uh, the Opry and various, you know, the Opry Entertainment, which is is the division that I work for, um, just launched Circle TV, which is a whole new digital platform um, devoted to country music content of all kinds. You know, they're broadcasting the live shows um, that the Opry is continuing to do now uh, to an empty house at the at Opryland. Um, you know, then they're generating a lot of content, so there's a lot of licensing and clearances involved, and so our department, in large measure, is, you know, that's why we exist, is to field all that activity um, for the rest of the company. So the archive is actually just a tiny little slice of all, all of that activity activity um so the archive sits in a really unique place jan it's it's a uh it's it's a weird time for for you for the opry for performances there's still an opportunity for i think performance and education i'm and i'm wondering what um, what endeavors you're currently involved in any collaborations you might be involved with on the performance uh, side of the business and what we can expect from uh, Jen Larson over the next couple of months. Sure. Thank, thank you for asking that question. Um, Cause it, it has been an interesting time for sure. Um, because 2020 was the year that I was hoping to kind of drop in, drop in uh, a bit more to the Nashville, the local bluegrass scene here um, and uh, start to make some connections and, and, get out and play music more and sort of the minute I opened my door in March to, to guitar in hand ready to go to the next jam session boom uh the door the door slammed shut with the COVID situation um so I've actually had though some opportunities to connect with people online and I've done a few uh live streams uh actually back up to my friends in New York that run a series on Facebook. So I've had a chance to, uh, you know, revisit some, some of the original songs that I've written and, and also uh, just songs that have been in my repertoire for a long time. And interestingly, uh, I've been invited to teach at the Augusta Heritage Center this year for their 2020 Bluegrass Week, um, which is a, a very interesting situation. Um, given that they've moved all of their coursework online and they've paired me up with uh, the incredible Joe Newberry to co-teach bluegrass vocals. Um, and we've, we've done some pre-recorded uh, class sessions. And then during the third week of July, when bluegrass week is actually going to be up and running um, on the Augusta heritage website um, for the campers that have, have signed up, uh, we're all going to be virtual teaching and virtual camping the third week of July. So that is is kind of an interesting challenge, like how to make how to make bluegrass music when we're all separated. Uh, Joe and I are going to be running a virtual jam. I'm not quite sure what that's going to look like, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to make it work somehow. How many bass players can you How many bass players can you have on, on a, at a virtual jam? I'm wondering. I know it it may not bring out the best in everybody or we're not sure, (laughs) but that's what the mute button's for. I think, you know, (laughs) you could just, well, uh, of course, Joe has got a a lot of history in, in the business and the music. And besides being an incredible musician, he is just an amazing storyteller. Absolutely. I am, I'm beyond blessed and lucky to be able to work with Joe. 
<clears throat> he's been a friend and a mentor. Um, we've had a lot of great conversations about music, and we were both really looking forward to uh, getting to sit together and actually put our voices together and sing. Um, hopefully that'll happen in person next year, but, you know, he's actually been an, an amazing partner to work with uh, to sort of overcome the technical challenges, um, you know, because the thing about bluegrass singing <laughs> is that it's really, you can't do it alone. It's, it's not impossible, but to me, bluegrass is such an integrally ensemble kind of music, um, you know, and I'm certainly more accustomed to working with other people. I don't usually sit sit in a room by myself and say, I'm going to play some bluegrass now. <laughs> uh, I, I, it's, for me, it's a very social, communal activity. Um, and so it's just been an interesting uh, time to reflect on what bluegrass music is and what it means to me in, in a time where we're all kind of a little bit at arm's length. You know, I really appreciate this time with you so much. And, um, you know, I, I have had kind of an interesting, uh, I guess, I guess the word career sort of applies to my bluegrass adventures, but it's it's been very much parallel with my other, my day job career track of museums and collections management. And, you know, it's just been really interesting to reflect on the fact that my paths have somewhat finally converged after all these years of having sort of a living, trying to jam two lives in one, really. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and frankly, I mean, it's been, it's been my impression that with the exception of, let's say the top one or 2% of, of, of performers within bluegrass and uh, th that, that really the, the smart approach to the industry is fine. Ha have a, um, have a fascination with the music, learn the music, but for God's sake, go out and get an education and then and then try to find a way to make it to to sort of meld both parts of your brain together instead of focusing on uh you know a high school degree plus fifty years of the banjo oh, I would say that's very true uh as romantic and wonderful as that may be um yeah I think the it, as difficult as it has been for me at times to um, juggle both both parts of my life, um, I'm very grateful about the fact that uh, I do continually keep finding ways to integrate um, my day job with what I love to do outside of that. Um, and I would encourage that, you know, for most folks, uh, you can still have a really meaningful and fun experience professionally or even just you know, non-professionally as a hobbyist, as a serious hobbyist, um, I think two-thirds of the bluegrass community falls into that category. And that's, it's not a bad place to be. You meet a lot of great people. You play a lot of great music. Appreciate the history together. Um, I don't know. I think to me that that's a lot of what why I enjoy the bluegrass community so much. You've been listening to Jen Larson talking with Howard Parker about her musical and educational background that prepared her for her job as manager of the Grand Ole Opry Archives. To find out more about all the Grand Ole Opry offers, visit www.opry.com. And you can hear more episodes of Bluegrass Stories on SoundCloud, Facebook, Apple and Google Podcasts, and on katydaily.com. I'm Katie Daly. Thanks for listening to Bluegrass Stories. Uh -huh.